Welcome to BSD Talk number 49. It's Thursday, the 1st of June, 2006. We just have an interview today, so I'll go right to it. Today on BSD Talk, we're speaking with Lance Spitzner, and he is the president of the HoneyNet Project. So I want to thank you for coming onto the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Will. So perhaps you could start by giving us a brief overview of what the HoneyNet Project is. Sure, real quick. Uh, we are a nonprofit security research organization, primarily native of volunteers. Our goal is to improve the security of the Internet at no cost to the public. And we do that by learning about the bad guys, bad guys' tools, tactics, things like that, and then sharing everything we learn. And when did you start the project? It informally started in 1999, but we incorporated as a nonprofit in 2001. And are you incorporated here in the United States? Yes, uh, incorporated in the uh, state of Illinois. And then we also got our 501c3 in 2001. That's the federal uh, recognition as a nonprofit. Now, there are also um, associated HoneyNet projects in other countries, correct? Absolutely. Um, starting around 2002, other countries started up their own kind of security research organizations with similar missions to ours. And then uh, you see them all over the world now. So you have like the German HoneyNet Project, the French HoneyNet Project, Brazilian, Chinese, Singapore, Pakistan. And we all work together, which is really neat because not only do we get a global set of ideas, but a global perspective on the Internet. And how would you define a HoneyNet? It's a type of honey pot. It's a high interaction honey pot. Really what it is is it's a network of real computers and real applications for the bad guys and malware to break into so we can watch all of their activity. Are these deployed in a small area or are you working with other companies to deploy them kind of all over the place? Uh, the HoneyNet project itself works only really, uh, with the uh, alliance members. So it's really small deployments around the world through other HoneyNet organizations like the ones I mentioned before. Now, I do know of other large companies that have this technology deployed, but we don't work with them. Besides just being a concept, do you also have specific tools for uh, working with HoneyNets? Yeah, sure. Uh, some of the big ones would be the Honeywall CD-ROM, Seabec, uh, and then we work with some of the other guys on the team that are developing some other tools, such as uh, Nepenthes, which is for botnet tracking. Could you give us a, a brief overview of the steps it takes to roll out a honeypot or a honeynet and the process of monitoring it and evaluating what goes on? Sure. Um, keep in mind, a honeynet is nothing more than one type of honeypot. There's many different types. No one type is better than the other. It all depends what you're trying to do. In, within a honeynet, the big deployment I issue is what's called your honeywall gateway. This is the access control device that controls all the inbound and outbound traffic to your honeypots. Uh, 
takes a little while to build, probably about half an hour. Then you put up your honey pots, which are just real systems. And then you sit back and watch. And we've hit the point now in our research where we're really focusing our efforts on data analysis. We have most of the mechanisms for capturing and collecting data. The trick is making it as easy as possible to analyze what's going on. Now, are you analyzing just network traffic, or are you also analyzing keystrokes and what's going on on the actual computer? Uh, everything. That's what makes us a little bit different as compared to most other data collections or analysis systems. We're looking at the network traffic, but we're also looking at the full packet payloads, extracting things like IRC chats, pack, uh, file transfers, HTTP, anything like that. But we're also, what's unique is use tools like CBEC, uh, developed by Ed Bayless at Indiana University, which is a tool to capture all the system activity so we can reconstruct things like keystrokes, file transfers, stuff like that, even in encrypted environments. I assume that this is always a, a cat-and-mouse game where the, the hackers, or whatever term we want to use, crackers, bad guys, you know, they're probably trying to avoid this kind of honeypot, and I guess you're, in a sense, using rootkits against them. <laughs> yeah, it is a kind of an odd game of chicken. It, there, there's several issues. We are open source. We share everything with the community. So, as you mentioned, the bad guys can easily go to our site, download it, reverse it, and come up with countermeasures. And they do. In some ways, uh, it's like playing a game of poker, except we're showing our hand to the bad guys. But... It's, we wouldn't want it any other way because we want to be open. There's no secrets, and by being open, um, it really increases our ability to share ideas, develop research, things like that. And are you deploying systems that are purposely old and unpatched, or are you also deploying up-to-date, modern, and fully patched and hardened systems? In the past, it was standard default just to see what's going on out there or with the purpose of capturing malware, such as botnets, seeing IRC traffic, command and control things, stuff like that. We are just now starting to roll out some more advanced, uh, what we'd call high-value honey nets, primarily in the financial sector. And that's just now in the initial phases. We're going to see how that works out. In the... Uh battle for securing the internet are things you know from what you've been gathering getting better or worse worse in general it's not so much an issue of technical security the in the past five years the security community has made great strides from a technical perspective um the problem is is what we've managed to secure in five years the bad guys have been able to figure out how to get around in about five minutes and you see that more on the social engineering side, the idea being that the systems are more secure, the applications are more secure, so the bad guys now simply attack the human involved. Things like phishing attacks or messages to instant messaging, click on this link, download this thing. Basically, they're attacking the human, fooling the human, because now that's become the weakest link. And then the other reason it's just gotten worse is... Um, because of the financial motives. It's no longer an issue of people out there trying to promote their skills, establish a reputation. It's all about return on investment. The bad guys are out to make money. So they're going to be very quiet. They're going to be very efficient. They're going to be very effective. And they're going to do whatever makes them the most money. And see, the, the whole social engineering perspective is where a lot of the profit is. And that's very hard to solve from a technical perspective. Now, once you start you know, moving away from cracking activity that's exploratory and perhaps teenage curiosity towards something that's 
profit motive? Do you risk running up against organized crime and perhaps some more dire consequences of working against them? Well, absolutely. In fact, a lot of ways, when you're trying to solve hacking, it's not so much hacking you're trying to solve, it's crime. And we've always had crime. We've had it for thousands of years, so there's not going to be any 100% solution. All you can do is deter crime. The problem is, from an Internet perspective, it's extremely, extremely profitable in that now the criminals have market to the entire world. And the problem is, is not only is it extremely profitable, but it's extremely low risk. It's very, very difficult for attribution, identifying the specific individuals involved in an attack. And then even if you have identified them, you now have to prove it was them in a court of law and then prosecute them, which can be difficult if they're countries coming from such as China, Romania, Brazil, things like that. So the whole issue really now comes down to high return on investment for the bad guys with very low risk. So that's one of the main reasons I think it's going to get worse. And I was just wondering, you know, recently there was a fairly high-profile story about an anti-spam company that was essentially knocked off the Internet and had to give up due to denial-of-service attacks just because the, the people behind these kinds of activities uh, are getting more powerful and there's a lot of money in it for them. So do you think your project is at risk for that kind of activity? No, not really, because the honeypots in general have one purpose only, to gather information. And in general, we've seen the bad guys really don't care if you gather information on them, if they're on a honeypot. A lot of times, we, most of the time, they don't even look. The reason I'm guessing is, one, when they break into a system, they don't care if that system is identified as compromised because they have 5,000 other computers. They're not going to worry about it. And two, they really don't feel anybody's going to go after them. They don't feel they're at risk. So they're really not so worried about somebody gathered, gathering information on them as I believe they're more gathered about somebody that would impact their return on investment. So in the case you're talking about, such as the anti-spam efforts, that actually impacts their bottom line. Thus, that's why they get in a little. Uh, that's why they get involved in counterattacks. And are you seeing, you know, when you're gathering statistics, a change in the mixture of manual versus automated attacks? Yeah, that happened many, many, many years ago. Um, three, four, five years ago. When we first started, there was a lot of uh, manual activity involved. You'd see the guys doing the keystrokes and making mistakes. Uh, you'd see them actually trying to configure the system to hide their activity, things like that. But nowadays, most of the stuff is automated. Uh, a lot of times they don't bother trying to hide their tracks, things like that. Remember, it all comes back to return on investment. You know, manual activity is very time and resource intensive. They go ahead, they develop some new tools. They probably, some organizations may have their own R&D departments. And that automation gets them a lot of return on investment. So, yeah, it, everything went automated, but it went automated years ago. I guess they're in a very target-rich environment right now. Absolutely. At what point when your honeypot or your honey net is being used for this kind of activity, do you pull the plug on it? There must be a point at which you're starting to get some wonderful information about what they're doing, but at the same time, you're providing a launch pad. So when do you make that decision about when to shut it down? Well, first of all, every 
all hunting nets come with functionality or mechanisms called data control. There's several pieces in place to ensure that when they do anything outbound or when they do try to hurt people, there's automated mechanisms to really mitigate that risk. You can't eliminate it, but it really uh, mitigates it. Counting outbound connections, IPS systems, these help reduce risk of malicious outbound activity. The big point is normally we keep them online as long as we're learning something new, and then if we're not learning anything new, then we pull the plug. In a lot of cases now, it may be the same individuals, that may be the same activity. What's new is the malware. So sometimes maybe it's just the code you want. It all depends specifically what you're interested in learning. And speaking of these individuals, do you also profile individuals, or is it primarily just techniques? Profile individuals, but not so much as, you know, it's, here comes Bob, here comes Dave, and things like that. But more um, cultural perspectives. For example, we'll profile or characterize the country of Romania. Romania being a good, good example, you see a lot of hacking and activity coming out of Romania. Well, if you sit down and analyze the country for a little bit, you get a better understanding of why. Here is an extremely highly educated country. Their literacy rate is greater than the United States. Eastern European countries tend to have a um, stronger background in mathematics, but their economy is horrible. A lot of highly educated, skilled individuals who can't get a job. In a lot of ways, that becomes a breeding ground for economic hacking, people trying to make money by breaking into systems, things like that. And then you could apply that very same profile to maybe other countries like Nigeria. So by better understanding the individuals, their motives, and things like that, you can better understand who they're going to target, how, and why. Do you publish statistics on what countries are showing up on your honey nets the most? No, not really, because there's already a lot of organizations out there that do a very good job about that, um, like SANS, um, incident, Incidents.org, or, um, you know, Symantec, things like that. What we try to do is a little different, is take it a little bit farther and really try to get into the heads of the bad guys, which can be <laughs> very difficult. And is IRC still the primary communication feature of the digital underground? It's the primary one that we see. Now, I'm sure there's other channels there that we're not seeing, just because they're maybe more, uh, more secured, more private. That's one of the challenges we're facing now. Now that the bad guys are criminally motivated, return on investment, they are motivated not to be seen, motivated not to be caught. They don't want to build a reputation. They don't want to have everyone know how good they're doing. They prefer to be very quiet. So that just makes it all the more challenging in trying to capture information on a lot of threats. Now, if someone was interested in setting up their own small honeypot or honey net, maybe just for messing around and experimenting, uh, what tools do you provide and how easy are they to use? They're pretty easy to use nowadays. Three, four, or five years ago, it was, you know, it took a couple days. Now you can have one up running in about an hour or so. In fact, uh, the big tool we released to make things easier is something called the Honeywall CD-ROM. It's a bootable device that pretty much implements all the uh, data capture and data control functionality you need. It's all up on the website. And in fact, it's something that we tend to have a debate in internally is just how easy do we want to make this because we're starting to hit the point where people can deploy this technology that really don't understand what they're doing, that don't understand the bad guys, and may not fully be aware or understand all the risks and issues, even though we have this all documented. And we've seen this in some of the questions that people have asked us, where they just really don't have an understanding of the basic concepts of Unix. 
So that, that's something we internally have a debate on, is just how easy to make this. And when you said the concepts of Unix, do your tools primarily only run on Unix, or are there other platforms that they run on? Strictly Unix. What we do right now is the Honeywell CD-ROM is based on Fedora, of the Linux distribution. It's a decision that the developers made because I believe of just their preference for some of the functionality. What we're attempting to do is take the HoneyNet functionality itself and create packages so it can deploy on any type of Unix-based system, be it a BSD, Mac, Linux, have what you. So to try to make the HoneyNet functionality itself independent of the OS base. Now, once people have gathered this information, or when you folks have gathered this information, what tools do you use to analyze this data? Uh, one of the first primary tools for analyzing, it's a tool called Walleye. Uh, once again, that was developed by Ed Bales from the Indiana University team. And it's a tool to really start getting a feel of what's been going in and out of your HoneyNet, things like that. And it allows some pretty neat features, like um, you can analyze the processes, the keystrokes, all the functionality on the HoneyPod itself through Seebeck. Uh, now, we're developing a lot more tools right now on primarily data analysis. One of the guys leading that effort is Jed Hale. And the challenge we have from a data analysis perspective is, like I said earlier, is it's just not looking, we're not just looking at packets and packet payloads, but we're looking at a lot of other things too. So it can be a challenge taking tools that allow you to analyze all of that combined. So we're using some stuff that already exists out there, tools like Ethereal or things like that, but we're also having to develop some of our own. If people want to practice this kind of analysis, I see that you have a lot of very interesting challenges, including sample data on your website. Maybe you could talk a little bit about those. Sure. Um, something called Scan of the Month Challenges uh, was very popular in the past. And what's that all about is capturing real attacks and then letting people analyze it. The reason we're not doing those so, so much anymore is the problem is, is we're not really running into anything new, new in that for the past four or five years, the bad guys have been constantly developing new ways to break into systems, or once they break into systems, they do new things. Now it's pretty much um, a lot of the developments happening on botnets and malware. So it's not so much analyzing what the bad guys are doing or things like that. They're all doing the same thing, and they're just improving the capabilities of their tools once they break into your system, and primarily um, uh, getting back to botnets and malware. I think the challenges are definitely a lot of fun. Uh, I think anyone who's learning any kind of advanced networking or they're interested in running machines should take a look at them for some eye-opening uh, analysis. Yeah, absolutely. One of the neat things about our organization is most people cannot share compromise, information on attack, things like that. It makes it very difficult to learn. For example, in the United States, when an airplane crashes, the Federal Aviation Authority goes in, analyzes why the, system, the airplane crashed, and then shares that information with everyone to ensure that it doesn't happen again. The problem is, is when a company is broken into, that information is never shared, the lessons learned are not shared, so it's very hard for people to learn about how the bad guys are breaking into systems or to actually analyze and develop the skills of a broken-in system. Fortunately, with honeypots and honeynets, we can freely share all that information so people can actually analyze a real hacked computer or real malicious code, things along those lines. Now, do your tools also use or function with virtualization? 
Absolutely. Uh, we've used VMware for a while. We've looked into some of these uh, other versions, I mean, the other types of uh, virtualization software, especially open source. But now that VMware is free, we find that very easy to use. In fact, my HoneyNet uses VMware. And another way for people to learn, I guess, would be to purchase the book, Know Your Enemy. Absolutely. We released a book uh, several years ago. The, the neat thing about the book is it will give you a good foundation and background to a lot of the neat things we're doing, it's issues such as data collection, data control, but also non-technical issues such as the profiling, characterization, the legal issues. The only thing is the uh, book being published two years ago is not caught up with some of the more uh, rapid developments we've done, especially in distributed management and distributed data analysis. For that, you have to go to our white papers. So besides buying the book to help the organization, what other ways can people contribute? The biggest thing we're always looking for is help. For people who have the ideas, if somebody wants to help on a project and contribute some code, want to do some testing, things like that, that would be a wonderful way to get involved. And speaking of code, what licenses do you use for some of your tools that you produce? Right now, some of them are under the BSD license and some uh, are under the GPL license. It's something that we, uh, the developers uh, are currently debating. We originally were on BSD, then we moved to GPL, and right now we're having a team discussion on uh, uh, which license that they want to go to. Both have their advantages and disadvantages, so it's a tough decision. I saw that CBEC is released under the four-clause BSD license. Absolutely. And that's the primary host-based tool? Yes, that is. All right. Well, having spent years observing people breaking into computers, I assume it could increase your personal level of paranoia. And so <laughs> yeah, you could say that. I was wondering, you know, and this may or may not be a reflection of your experiences, but what you choose to use on your systems. I use a little bit of everything. If it's going to talk to the Internet, I use OpenBSD. For my personal stuff, I like macOS. And are your choices based on security or functionality, or why did you choose those operating systems? For the Mac OS, I chose it for functionality. It's just tremendously easy to use. makes my life so much easier. And then for OpenBSD, like I said, if it talks to the Internet, uh, I go with OpenBSD, um, A, because it's just so secure, and B, I happen to personally know Theo, and anybody that fanatical about security has got to be good in my book. Sometimes you hear people talk about OpenBSD and say that, you know, when hackers detect that the operating system is OpenBSD, they just run away. Um, I wonder whether you have any evidence to the contrary or to support that, given the stuff that you've been gathering. Um, what we've seen and gathered is it's not so much they don't run away. It's most of the time the bad guys just focus on what they know. They know Linux, they know Windows, do they have the exploits for that, or the malware, the automated tools have it for that. So, if they go hit on a system and it's not what they expect, then they move on. Most often, OpenBSD is something that they're not targeting, something they don't expect. But this is a generalization. So when they hit that and it's OpenBSD, they just move on. But it's not so much it's because it's OpenBSD, but more because it's not what they were expecting or wanted. I think any of the, any of the perhaps less popular operating systems can have that benefit. It's almost security through obscurity, but... I see a lot of attempts to do stuff are dropping pre-compiled Linux binaries, which obviously aren't going to work. Oh, yeah, we've seen that. Or you see Solaris x86 exploits on a Solaris Spark box, things like that. Speaking of Spark, uh, do you have 
primarily on the i386 platform, or do your does your HoneyNet software work on other uh, architectures? The Honeywell CD-ROM works with any. The feedback c- code is kernel-based code, so that's very specific to the platform. But it's been uh, it's been designed for both Spark and Intel. Do you get a sense that the hackers are using particular operating systems? I, I shouldn't be calling them hackers. Some people are going to jump all over me for that because they want me to call <laughs> them crackers, but whatever we'll call them, the bad guys. Do you also do OS detection from them? The bad guys, the general, the, the ones primarily motivated by um, money, normally they're using compromised systems to compromise other systems. So what happens is, yes, the OS base is commonly Windows, but if you trace back the system they're using, it's, you know, some poor guy in India or Korea or Brazil or something like that. So when you're doing OS de- detection, you're really just detecting the OS of the uh, systems the bad guys are bouncing through or the malware is using to spread. Perhaps to give you a little bit of a hard time, just in fun, looking at Netcraft, it looks as though the HoneyNet.org project website uh, over many previous years was hosted on OpenBSD or NetBSD. It's hard to tell which. And that recently it's Open. switched uh, to Linux. Well, the reason there is uh, we all, almost all of us prefer OpenBSD as a web-based platform. The reason we've transitioned to Linux was RPM-specific because the Honeywell CD-ROM is RPM-based. And we build and provide our own RPMs so the Honeywells can actually be updated using YUM, real-time updating. We needed to edit up the web server, needed to be Linux-based to uh, support building and uh, replicating of RPMs. And that is the only reason that you see Linux there. Well, are there any other topics you want to talk about today? No, it sounds like you uh, did a good job of picking my brain. <laughs> yes, well... I mean, what, what there is to pick? Yeah. Uh, well, I want to thank you then very much for speaking with me today and, and wish you luck with the project. It seems to be a, a really great contribution to the Internet community. Well, thanks so much. We appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you again. If you'd like to leave comments on the website or reach the show archives, you can find them at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. Or if you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. That's B-I-T. G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening, and this has been BSD Talk number 49.